Let's pray and then we'll get rocking and rolling. Father, we love you. We praise you. Father, we thank you for this day. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the opportunity to gather together like this this morning, Father, and open up your word. And Father, proclaim this message that it might move, move us from being hearers of your word to being doers. God, I know there's a lot of people around the world that can't do what we're doing right now. Father, I read about believers around the world that if they open up a Bible and they talk and they preach the way we are right now, Father, it may cost them their life. And so, Father, I don't want to take the next few moments for granted. I know these people did not come here today to hear from me. My words have no power. But, Father, your words do. And so, Father, I ask that I would decrease, you would increase, and you would speak a word into our hearts and to our lives, Father, that would move us to go out into this world and flip it upside down for the glory of your name. Father, let us break our holy huddle and let us run to play. Father, we love you, we praise you, and we ask all these things in your precious name. Amen. So we'll go ahead and pick up in John chapter 4, verse 1, and this is what it says. It says, now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. Now, many times when I used to read the Bible, I would read things like that. I would say, that didn't make any sense. Let me just move on to the next thing. And just maybe um, every time I would get to that passage that was hard or it was difficult to understand, I would just write it off and say, it's not important. I would move on to the next thing. But what I found was this. A pastor said this. He said, you can approach the Bible like raking leaves or digging. He said, raking leaves is easy, but all you get is leaves. He said, but if you dig, you might find diamonds. And so what I discovered was I wasn't really growing in my walk with the Lord because I was approaching the Bible like raking leaves. It's one of those things that if it didn't jump off the pages to me and I, if I couldn't rake it up and understand what it was, I wouldn't go any further with it. But what I found is if I really wanted to grow in my relationship with the Lord and I really wanted to cultivate intimacy with him, I had to start digging a little bit. And so when I got to a passage like that, I said, you know what, that didn't make a lot of sense. I really want to dig there and find out why it was that Jesus knowledge that the Pharisees knew his disciples were baptizing more disciples than John the Baptist. Why would that cause him to leave Judea and head to Galilee? Well, this is what I found as I studied the scripture. Anybody that's read the Bible or the New Testament for any length of time, you'll see that Jesus and this group of Pharisees, they don't get along. That John the Baptist and these Pharisees are, are, are two, it's like uh, oil and water. They just totally do not mix. As a matter of fact, Jesus would often talk about this group called the Pharisees. He would say this, you're like a whitewashed tomb. On the outside, everything looks really good. You got a lot of religious activity in your life. You go to church every time the synagogue is open. But in all reality, he said the inside is like it's full of dead man's bones. He said, you're like a cup. The outside looks real clean. But if you look on the inside of that cup, it's absolutely filthy. As a matter of fact, in Matthew chapter four, paraphrasing this, but the Pharisees are coming down to be baptized by John the Baptist. And John the Baptist essentially looks at them and he says, you brood of vipers who warns you to flee from the wrath to come. Essentially, what he tells them is to prove by the way that you live that you're really ready to surrender your life to the Lord and be baptized. But in all reality, what John was saying was the same thing that Jesus was saying is you guys have a real heart issue. You're not coming to Jesus because you desire him. You're coming to Jesus because you want a prominent seat in society. You want everybody to look at you and talk about how great you are. And the essence of Christianity is about denying oneself. 
And so as he would preach that message, what would happen is the Pharisees had, had a problem with that. And instead of adhering to that message, instead of their hearts being softened, their hearts were actually being hardened. And you'll see all throughout the scripture, they're constantly looking for an opportunity to discredit the integrity and the character of everything that Jesus and John the Baptist have going on. All throughout the scripture, he would heal somebody and they would get upset that he's healing on the Sabbath day. They're always trying to catch Jesus in a lie. They're always trying to stumble him up on his words, but they can't do anything. And they don't have an air. Every time that they would try to get in an argument with Jesus, he would always have the right words to say. And they would leave stumped every single time. But all throughout the scripture, you see this constant conflict with the Pharisees and Jesus and John the Baptist. And so as I studied that, I said, you know what? Maybe it was. We can't know this for certain. Maybe it was that Jesus, he wanted to kind of keep the peace at that moment. His hour had not yet come. So he says, you know what? I'm going to move on to the next town and preach the gospel there. Maybe it was that he was trying to uphold the character and the integrity of John the Baptist. Because as we study the scripture, we'll find that John the Baptist was a man that Jesus absolutely adored in every way. So maybe it was that Jesus leaves because he wants to uphold the character and the integrity of what John the Baptist has going on. Now, we can't know that for certain, but one thing we can know 100% with certainty is that Jesus did not leave Judea and head to Galilee out of fear. All right, the scripture says in John 10, 18, no one, Jesus says, no one takes my life from me. I lay down my life on my own accord. What that means is this. No one puts their hands on Jesus until Jesus says, you can put your hands on me. So he doesn't leave out of fear. All right. There's a number. Of, we, we, we can't know for certain why he leave. But I said, you know what? I really want to dig below that and see what it is that's going on. So Jesus leaves Judea and he has the Galilee. So check this out. It says in verse four, and he had to pass through Samaria. Now, as I studied this, I thought, you know what? If Jesus had an iPhone. Back on the day, if he had a GPS mounted on a donkey and he wanted to know, how can I get from Judea to Galilee? Here is reality. As I studied this and looked at the map, there's multiple routes that he could have taken. As a matter of fact, in those days, the Jews would take a more roundabout journey, even crossing the Jordan, because they didn't want to encounter this unclean people group called the Samaritans. They said, we don't want to defile ourselves with these Jews that had intermarried with Gentiles. They looked at them and called them half breeds. And they said, we're going to skip this town altogether. But Jesus says, my gospel is a whosoever gospel. I came for the Samaritans. I came for the sick. I came for the broken. So I'm going smack dab through the middle of Samaria. He says, I will not conform to my environment, but I will flip my culture upside down. But you know what I found, church, as believers, this is what I found in my experience with churches. The more we grow as a church, the more introverted we become. The more we grow as a church, the more we begin to make church about me, myself, and I. We make church about my preferences. We make church about my opinions, what I want, and what serves me best. But what I find in the scripture is the more these guys tied into a relationship with Jesus Christ, and the more they walked more intimately attached to that vine, what I found is the more outward their lives were. Their hands were always reaching out, always looking for an opportunity to encounter somebody with this life-saving news of the gospel. And what Jesus does is he says, I will not conform to my environment, but I will flip my environment upside down. You guys think that the Samaritan people are unclean. Well, watch this. I must go through the middle of Samaria. My question to you guys this morning is this, is where is that Samaria in your life? 
Who are those people that God's calling you to minister to? Who's that coworker? Who's that Samaritan individual on your workplace right now that you say, you know what? I can't stand working for this boss, so I can't stand working with this guy. When it may possibly be that Jesus has placed you exactly where you're at in this hour, in this moment, for such a time as this, and him saying, this is the Samaritan that I've called you to encounter. Could it possibly be that that Samaritan is across the street from you? But church, I believe with all in my heart, that we got to start asking ourselves these questions daily. we got to say, Father, where is the Samaria in my life? I don't want to get so caught up in my Christian bubble. I don't want to get so caught up in all my religious activity that I miss out on those hurting, broken individuals that are absolutely filthy and in need of the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ. Who are those people in my life? you got to start asking those questions. So what Jesus does is he says, I must go through Samaria. So check out what happens. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus wearied as he was from his journey, and he was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. Now, what that means, the sixth hour is about 12 o'clock noon for me and you, the hottest time of day. And if you look at this, what you'll find is no one in their right mind goes to get water at the hottest time of day. Typically, what would happen in these days, if you needed some water, you would get up early in the morning or you would go later in the evening. But you would never go at 12 o'clock noon because you know how hot it is. It's one of those East Alabama, July summer days. You're not going at 12 o'clock. But see, Jesus was intentional. Jesus had an appointment with someone. There was a young lady that was living in all types of sin. We're going to talk about it in a minute. But she had she had a lot of baggage in her life, living in a lot of sin. And he knew she was going to be at this well at 12 o'clock noon. He knew he was going to encounter this sinner. And guys, listen to me. I believe with all of my heart that if we would walk in step with Jesus Christ and we would be attached to the vine and be led, guided and directed by his Holy Spirit, we would have more of these encounters than what we do today. The same spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is the same spirit he placed inside of us. You know what he told his disciples? Now, listen, this was hard for me to comprehend. He says, listen, guys, it's better for you that I leave. It's better for you that I go away. It's to your advantage that I leave, because if I don't leave, I can't send you this helper. But if I leave, I'm going to send you this helper in the Holy Spirit. Now, listen, if I'm walking with Jesus, I'm thinking, man, it don't get any better than literally having Jesus sitting beside me. I mean, I got a lot of questions, right? And any question I have, if I got Jesus riding down the road with me, it doesn't get any better than that. And for Jesus to look at me and say, Mitchell, it's better for you that I leave. It's better for you that I leave and I not be in this car with you right now. It's to your advantage that I go away. And that's hard for me to comprehend. But this is what Jesus was saying. The Jesus that is in you is far better than the Jesus that's beside you. You see, right now, he says, I may be sitting beside you. Right now, I may be walking beside you. But when I leave, I'm going to send you the power of the Holy Spirit. And when the Spirit of God comes upon you, he says, you're going to be my witnesses. You're going to start doing some things that you wouldn't normally do. You're going to start going some places that you wouldn't normally go. You're going to start having some encounters with some Samaritan women. You're going to start seeing me do a work in a powerful way when you encounter this Holy Spirit. And so what happens is Jesus is sitting beside the well. It's the sixth hour. And in verse seven, it says a woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. 
for his disciples had gone into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. She knows the animosity that the Jews have towards the Samaritans. She said, how in the world is it that you, a Jew, are even talking to me, a Samaritan woman? To kind of give you a portrait of what really is going on in this passage, back in the 60s, I heard a pastor give this illustration. He said, back in the 60s, there were stores that, like Woolworths and Walgreens that literally had two different plumbing systems to offer two water fountains in their stores. One said colored people and the other said white people. He said and for a colored person or for a white person to drink from a colored water fountain would have started a riot. He said, but essentially in this passage of scripture, Jesus is sitting beside that colored water fountain asking this black woman to give him something to drink. Not only is he asking her for something to drink, he's going to put his lips to her water bottle. And you say, how can you know that? We're going to find out Jesus didn't have anything to draw water with. So he's literally going to flip his culture upside down and put his Jewish lips to her Samaritan cup, her Samaritan water bottle. Man, Jesus is setting an illustration for us. You know, I've struggled with this often because as I read Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, John gets this revelation, this vision of heaven, and he says it's every tribe and it's every tongue. That Jesus, this gospel is a whosoever gospel. It's not just a white gospel, not just a black gospel, but it's a whosoever gospel. And it bothers me sometimes because as I read the Lord's prayer, he says, you should pray like this. Lord, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And if that's what heaven looks like, I've often wondered and I've struggled with this and said, Lord, why do our churches look the way that they look? If that's what heaven looks like. Why do our churches look this way? And you know what I found? We tend to gravitate towards those people that act like us, that walk like us, and talk like us. You know why? Because that's where we're comfortable. I'm going to be honest with you guys. I'm being transparent. I'm speaking this message to myself. I'm comfortable there. So I gravitate towards people that look like me, that walk like me, and talk like me. And that's why he said he's going to send me this comforter in the Holy Spirit. But this is what I found. We don't need the comforter in the Holy Spirit when I'm already comfortable. I got to start getting out in those uncomfortable, uncharted waters and start ministering to those people, ministering to those Samaritans that are in my life. If we want the church to look the way heaven looks like. And we got to be intentional about doing that. So what Jesus says is I'm going to flip the script. Can you imagine in the 60s? A white man sitting next to a colored water fountain asking a black woman for something to drink and then putting their lips to that black woman's water bottle. That's essentially what's going on right here in this passage of scripture. And it totally throws this woman off. Notice what she says. She says, I can't believe that you're even talking to me. I can't believe that you're even having a conversation with me. I would love for the church to be characterized by that. I can't believe you're going to those places. I can't believe that you're talking to me. You know the sin that I'm living in. You know the things that I'm indulging. I cannot believe that you would be intentional about weaving gospel threads into my conversation so that you might see me adopted into the kingdom. No one wants to talk to me. No one wants to hang around me. Man, there's something different about the way you walk and talk. Man, I want that. I desire that. But I got to be intentional about looking at my life and saying, Lord, have I got a lot of religious activity in my life? And am I getting so introverted, caught up in my religious activity 
activity that I got Samaritan people perishing around me all day, every day. So Jesus says, I'm going to give you an example. Because now listen to me, Jesus would never preach something to you that he didn't show you how to practice or put it into play. He said, I'm not just giving you lip service. I'm not just giving you words. I'm going to show you how to do this. Notice what she says. She said, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and he drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. And Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. You see, what happens is Jesus says, listen, if you only knew who it was that's talking to you. He said, I got some living water to offer you. And when you drink of this living water, it's going to change your life. It's going to flip your life upside down. It's going to quench your thirst. You see, but she's still thinking in the natural. She's thinking, yeah, that'd be awesome. Give me this living water. That means I don't have to come at 12 o'clock noon at the hottest time of day and get this water. If you've got this eternal, this this water, this living water, that means it's always going to be providing me what I need. I can sit back at the house, live in my sin, not worry about what everybody else is saying about me. Yes, give me some of this living water. You see, she's thinking in the natural. See, but what Jesus is telling her is this. You know what? You've been trying everything that the world has to offer. We're going to see she's been trying sex with every man in town. She's trying everything that the world has to offer, yet it's left her empty on the inside. Because every human being walking this planet was born with a God-shaped void in their heart and their life that only Jesus Christ can fill. It don't matter where you come from. I had a person tell me this. They said, Mitchell, you can't minister to an addict because you've never been an addict. And it bothered me as I was riding down the road and almost audibly I I felt the Lord speak to me. He said, you know what, Mitchell? I encountered every type of sinner in this scripture. I encountered the adulterer. I encountered the demon possessed. I encountered the dead. I encountered the religious guy, Nicodemus. I encountered every type of sinner there was. And though their sin was different, the remedy was always the same. And know where your sin and your it may be drugs. Yours may be sex. Yours may be people pleasing. Yours may be religious activity. It doesn't matter what that is, though my sin is different and it manifests itself differently. He says the remedy is the same. It's living water. It is Jesus Christ, the bread of life that he's offering to this woman in this moment. But you know what? Check this out. She's not ready for salvation. But Jesus doesn't give up. The scripture says, do not grow weary in doing good, for in due season you will reap a harvest if you do not give up. You see, God's called many of us in this room to be a John the Baptist, to prepare the way for Jesus, to till up the soil of of someone's heart, to to weave those gospel threads into our conversation, to take our natural conversations of talking about football and shifting it to the spiritual and preparing the heart for that individual. When that seed finally takes root, it's going to produce a beautiful tree. And so what Jesus does is he says, I'm going to set the precedent for you. Do not grow weary in doing good. Do not give up. You keep tilling up that soil. That co-worker that you have a hard time working alongside, man, don't give up. Keep tilling up the soil. That that child that you have that's gone wayward, he says, don't give up. Keep tilling up the soil. 
That neighbor that you have across the street, he says, don't give up. Keep tilling up the soil of their heart. Because in due season, you will reap a harvest if you do not give up. And so what Jesus does is he says, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to stop here. I'm not going to give up on you. I'm going to keep pressing in. So notice what he does. Jesus said to her, she said, the woman in verse 15, she said, the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or come, ha- or come here, have to come here to draw water. She says, sir, give me this living water. And I will tell you guys this, many times there's many pastors, many preachers in America that are stopping the message here. We're stopping here and we're saying, you know what, that's exactly what it is that Jesus wants to give you. Jesus wants to give you good gifts. Come to Jesus and your bank account's going to look different. Come to Jesus and all your relationships are going to be fixed. Come to Jesus and it's going to be peaches and cream all the time, right? Come to Jesus and you're always going to have a smile on your face. But I would tell you this, that's not the gospel that I see in this scripture. As a matter of fact, 11 of those original 12 lost their life for the gospel. The Jesus that we follow essentially hung on a cross, mangled and beaten beyond recognition. And he said, if they did this to me, how much more? Or do you think they're going to do that to those that follow me? You see, we're going to have persecution. We're going to have trials. We're going to have pains. And so I'm not coming today to elevate the gifts above the giver. I'm not coming today to elevate creation above the creator because those things will never satisfy you. I talked to a guy that's playing right now for playing left field for the Houston Astros, signed a one year, 15 million dollar deal. And he says, I got all the money in the world. And I thought that's where it was at. I got all the fame, all the spotlight on me and I'm left empty on the inside. You see, because there's nothing in this world that has to offer that can fill that God shaped void in your life. And so Jesus doesn't stop. He doesn't say, OK, I'll give you this living water and you can go on your way. Notice what he does. He says, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying you have no husband, for you have five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. Now, this is funny. Listen to what she says. Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Uh, You've been peeking in my window. You've been on my Twitter, my Instagram, my Facebook. You know everything about me. My goodness, you must be a prophet. Notice what happens. Now, a lot of us would read this. We would think, man, that was harsh. Why would Jesus say that? Why would he confront this woman in her sin? Knowing that she doesn't have not one, not two, not three, not four, but five. And the man she's with now, she's not even married to. Now, a lot of people look at that and they would say, man, don't talk about that three letter word called sin. That's offensive. But Jesus knew this. If we never identify the sickness, if we never identify the disease, you'll have no appreciation whatsoever for the cure. You see, if I walked in here this morning, I said, hey, guys. I sold our swag wagon, sold my house, sold my car, sold everything that we have. I bought you to cure the cancer. Here you go. I'm going to give it to you. A lot of you would say, well, I appreciate that, Mitchell, but I don't have cancer. What do you want me to do with this? But now, if you went to the doctor like a friend of mine's father just a few months ago, and they say, listen, man, you're eat up with pancreatic cancer. As a matter of fact, it's made its way up to your liver. You have no hope. You're going to die. Matter of fact, he did pass away 57 days later from this prognosis. But if I were to walk up to him and I were to say, hey, listen, I know what the doctor said, but I sold my house, sold my car, sold everything I have. I cashed everything out and I bought you to cure the cancer. Here you go. I want to give it to you. It's a different story then, right? You see, because when I realize I've got the sickness, I appreciate the cure. I can't bypass sin. Jesus didn't bypass sin. 
He says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Listen, he says, I can't bypass this three letter word called sin because those things, those are the chains. That's the bondage that's keeping you from running your race unhindered. So I'm not going to bypass this three letter word. As a matter of fact, I'm going to get all up in your life and identify the issues that you've got going on. But I'm not going to leave you there. I'm not going to leave you condemned in that moment. Listen, I'm going to bring about freedom in your life. He says, you got sin. You got some issues. You're sleeping with every man in town. Notice what she says. Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem there's a place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is here now when true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and in truth. For the father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Notice what she does. She's still not ready, guys. She's still not ready. But Jesus doesn't give up. You see, I believe we're giving up too soon in our evangelistic efforts. We say it's too far gone. This community's too far gone. I believe that oftentimes what we do is we get caught up watching Fox News all the time, and we get depressed and we get beat down. We say, man, we're going to vote for this woman. We're going to vote for Donald Trump. What are we going to do? We get all caught up in this political mess, and we become those Debbie Downers with a glass half empty all the time. And Jesus says, you're the light of the world. Like a city on a hill, it cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp, throw a blanket over the top of it. He says, no, they light that lamp. They put it on a stand so it gives light to everyone in the room. He said, in the same way, let your good deeds shine before men so they might praise your father who is in heaven. You know what? If there's a problem with the darkness in my community, could it possibly be that there's a problem with the light? If there's a problem with the darkness inside of our schoolhouses, young people, could it possibly be that there's a problem with the light? And I believe with all of my heart that God is calling us to flip the switch back on, to burn for the glory of his name, to walk out into this world saying, I'm not going to live as a glass half empty individual. I'm going to live as a glass half full, knowing that I've read the end of the book. Yeah, sure, the ship is going down. But in the end, my victory is in Jesus Christ. Paul says, though my body is dying, my spirit is being renewed day by day. You know what I love about Paul? Paul was a guy that had been pelted with rocks, beaten within an inch of his life, literally. Left for dead outside the gates. And he's a guy that's getting old. His body is aching. I like to think sometimes, you know, I played football for a lot of years in college, and my body gets to aching sometimes, but I've never been pelted by rocks the way Paul had. And I've been beaten and and shackled in prison as many times as as he has. And he wasn't looking around, licking his wounds and talking about how bad he had it. He says, no, I look in the mirror. I know my body's dying. I've been pelted by these rocks. And he says, although my body is dying, my spirit's being renewed day by day. And if I'm on this planet for me to live as Christ, for me to die as gain, I will not stop. I will not put down the baton until the day that they put me in the grave. And I believe with all of my heart, God's calling up his soldiers in this church to say, listen, church is not bad in and of itself. Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together, but do not get so caught up in our religious activity that we never break our holy huddles and get to run into play. I've never been to a football game one time and said, man, I just love the way those guys huddle up. My wife might say that, but I've just never done that, right? I'm an Auburn fan. You had to forgive me, but I've never bought a ticket and went to an Auburn football game and said, man, I love the way those guys huddle. They should huddle more. All right. But reality is I've never said that. I bought a ticket 
And I went to the game because I want to see them break the huddle and run the play. Yeah. Guys, can I be honest with you? The world is tired of watching us huddle. Listen, I work for FCA. Ryan, you know, we call every meeting we have a huddle. And the huddle's not bad in and of itself. But we got to get real good at breaking that huddle and running the play. Yeah. And so what happens is Jesus presses, this lady's not ready, and he says, you know what, I'm not going to give up. And so what she does is she tries to engage Jesus intellectually. Now, one thing you don't want to do is engage the creator of this universe intellectually. All right. Now, I just you don't want to do that. A lot of people think that Einstein's smart. Listen, who put Einstein's brain inside of his head? It only takes you for a moment to look out in the creation, the way your eyeball works and the way your DNA works. And no, you don't want to engage this God intellectually. You know, they did it all throughout Scripture. And every time it was so funny, they would leave scratching their head like this guy's got an answer for everything we ask him. Right. He is the creator. He's the one that spun everything in motion. And so what she says is this, this idea of where we should worship and all. And listen to what Jesus says. Essentially, this is what he says to her. Listen, where you worship is not near as important as to who you worship and how you worship. He says, listen, I'm seeking out worshipers that would worship me in spirit and in truth. And it's not about proximity. Not about where you're at. It's about who you're worshiping and how you're worshiping. And I'm desiring people that would worship me in spirit and in truth. And I believe with all of my heart, when the church begins to worship God in spirit and in truth, he begins to literally inhabit the praises of his people. And he releases the blessing of more of his presence in our life. And you know what begins to happen? We start to walk off into some uncharted waters. We start to do things that we wouldn't typically do because I have an awareness of my father's presence in my life. You know, it's much like this. If I told my son, he's a little scary like I am. My mom, five boys growing up, she used to scare us all the time growing up. So I'm a little paranoid at night when it's dark. You can question my masculinity. It's just the way I am, right? And so my little son, Elijah, he's a lot like I am. Like if you ask him to go out to the car to get something and it's dark outside, mm-mm, it ain't happening, right? But if I tell him, if I said, hey, Elijah, I want you to walk with me out to the car. I need to get something out of it. 100% of the time he's walking with me. You know why? Because he's got an awareness of his father's presence in his life. You know what I found when I'm worshiping the Lord in spirit and in truth, the way God, the way Jesus is desiring this woman to worship him. He starts to release the blessing of more of his presence in in, in our life. And you know what? I'm not as scared anymore. I'm not scared to engage that neighbor. I'm not scared to necessarily go down to the, to the abortion clinic and do street ministry the way my wife last week was paranoid, scared to death, saying, what am I going to say? What am I going to do? So don't worry about what you're going to say. Because the spirit of God is going to give you the words in that moment. We're going to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. You're going to have a greater awareness of his presence and you're going to flip this world upside down for the glory of his name. But you know what happens is I found this when I was in high school. Young people, you might want to close your ears to this or hope that your parents are not hearing this. But this is what was happening when I was in high school. My mom used to tell me this. She would say, Mitchell, the music that you're listening to is garbage and it's destroying your life. All right, young people are like, man, my mom's been telling me that for you. Please don't preach that message, right? So what would happen is she would say, stop listening to that mess. It's destroying your life. And I remember telling my mom, I would say, mom, I don't have to be a Christian and just listen to Christian music. You see, I thought a lot of that Christian music, I would tell her, I would say, mom, it's just lame. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to listen to it. I just don't have to listen to that and be a Christian. You're being very legalistic. I remember often I would get in my truck almost every day and there would be a broke CD sitting in my drive uh, in my driver's seat. Brooke and I dated all through high school. It didn't matter if it was her CD, if it was in my car and my CD player is getting broke. All right. Every time it would happen. 
And I remember getting so frustrated, but my parents and my family, they would listen to songs like Amazing Grace and they would be moved to tears. And I would listen to that same song and it would affect me, not even the least bit. And you know what? I realized I couldn't worship in spirit and in truth because I didn't have the spirit of God living in the inside of me. But in 19 years of age, I surrendered my life to Christ. I drank of that living water. And you know what? Amazing Grace had a different tone going in my ears. It started to sound really good. And I started to hear it the way they used to hear it. And what I realized is that I couldn't worship the Lord in spirit and in truth because I didn't have the spirit inside of me. And what Jesus is telling this woman, when you drink of this water, it's going to change your life. But I want you to notice something. Somebody had been sowing seeds in this woman's life. Because notice what she said. She said, I know the Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. Somebody had been sowing gospel seeds in this woman's life. Somebody had told her about Jesus. All of a sudden, that soil is getting ripe. All of a sudden, that soil is getting ready for the seed of the gospel to drop. And notice this moment. Can you imagine being there in that moment when Jesus looks at her and he says, oh, yeah, I know that guy you're talking about. I who speak to you am he. That Jesus that you're talking about, the Jesus that you've been looking for in relationships and all the things this world has to offer, I'm standing in front of you. Now, I want you to notice something. When you encounter Jesus, it's impossible to remain the same. He's a game changer. He'll flip your world. He turns Saul's into Paul's. He will flip your world upside down. It's impossible to have an encounter with the God of this Bible and remain the same. I heard a pastor, David Platt, said this. It's like getting hit by a spiritual Mack truck. He said, it'd be like me and you having a lunch appointment. And he says, in around 12, uh, our lunch appointment is at 12 or 1230. You come walking in and you say, hey, man, I'm sorry I'm late. I was on my way, had a flat tire, got hit by a Mack truck. Man, knocked me off in the ditch. I dust myself off, got my tire changed, and I made it. He said, you would be looking at me like, really, man? You got hit by a Mack truck. He said, you got hit by a Mack truck. Your appearance would be radically altered. I'm just telling you. Now, he says, but you, there's no way you can tell me that you've had an encounter with the God of this Bible, the God that spoke life into existence, that spun the world into motion, that put the sun and the moon in the sky, that put the water in the ocean, and you encounter that God and remain the same. Man, there ain't no way. 19 years of age, my game changed. He flipped me upside down. And so notice what she does. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? They weren't marveling necessarily that she was a woman. They were marveling that he was talking to a Samaritan woman. I can't believe he's even talking to this woman. You see how I'm saying that Jesus sets the precedent? He says, you guys thought they were unclean. It's shocking you that I'm talking to her. She's the one I came for. I came for the broken. I came for the sick. I came for the hurting. The righteousness, those that are walking in self-righteousness have no realization of their need for me. These are the people that I came for. He said, I can't believe he's talking to her, but said no one said anything to him. So what happens, the woman left her water jar, went away into the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? What did she go to the well for? She went to the well to get water. She left her water jar. Because when you meet Jesus, it messes you all up. She went to the well to get some water. She gets back to the house and left her water pot there. You know, you see what happens when you meet Jesus, the things that you used to love, you begin to hate. The things you used to hate, you begin to love. You see that music my mom used to tell me all of a sudden, all of a sudden, 
That music sounded radically different. The things that I used to hate, I began to love. The things I used to desire to go after, I didn't want them anymore. You know why? Because I drank it at living water and my thirst was quenched. Listen, I mess up often. But there's not been one single day that I've woke up and said, I'm going back to the things of this world. You know why? Because I ate of the bread of life. I drank of the living water. My thirst is quenched. My hunger is quenched. I don't need anything else. I don't need it. And so what happens is she says, you got to come meet this man. Now, this is what people say. Now, evangelism is for Ron, is for Mitchell, is for the vocational ministers inside of this church. You got to have a seminary degree. You got to go here. You got to go to this college. You got to know this. Now, listen, this woman is a woman that's got a reputation in town. She's not a pastor. She's not a preacher. She's not a seminary. As a matter of fact, she's sleeping with every man in town. But what happens is she gets the gift of evangelism when she gets the gift of salvation. But she realizes this is too good for me to hold on to. I can't hoard this for myself Paul, I mean, Peter said, listen, if you've tasted it and tasted it indeed that it's good. Listen, if I've tasted this living water is good, I'm not going to hoard it for myself. I got to give it to somebody. I had no heart for evangelism until I received the gift of salvation in 19 years of age. And I realized, man, the same God that saved me is the same God that wants to save them. I got to do something with it. And so what happens is this. Since they went out in the town and all were coming to him. Listen, revival's taking place in Samaria because of this woman. So everybody is coming to the town, all right? They, they're coming back to Jesus. In verse 31, it says, Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Do you notice the disciples are always hungry? I always talking about food. I, every time I read, I'm like, these guys are just walking around starving all the time. You know, and if I got Jesus walking with me, I'm not worried about anything. Like, he can turn that rock into a piece of bread if we get hungry. Like, he feeds 4,000, 5,000. Like, what are we going to eat, man? Like, I'm like, why, why are they always worried about what he's eating, right? And so they say, has somebody brought him, brought him a hamburger? Like, what's going on, right? We, we were starving, and this guy's still not eating. But what Jesus essentially says to them is, I've been eating the whole time you've been gone. Yeah. Because my food is to do the will of my father. You see, you're getting distracted by your appetite. You're getting distracted by these temporary things that are not going to last. You're going off the, after the hamburger, but listen, I go on after some eternal food. You see that woman? She just got adopted into the kingdom. My question for us, church, is what is that thing in your life right now that's distracting you? You see, for the disciples, it was their, their hunger and their food. They said, we got to go get something to eat. Notice what they missed out on in that moment. They missed out on seeing the Samaritan woman get adopted into the kingdom because they were worried about their hamburger. My question to you, what is it that's in your life that's distracting you and keeping you from seeing souls adopted into the kingdom? Dads, could it be the promotion? Because not every promotion is from the Lord. I can provide my kids with a lot of things. But what my kids desperately need is they need a father that's investing into their life, training up a child in the way that he should go. Because one day I'm going to die, and listen, I'm not going to take any of those material possessions with me. What are we striving after? What is that thing in your life right now that's distracting you? Do we need to turn the phone off? Do we need to turn the TV off? Do we need to stop so many extracurricular activities because it's keeping me from getting across the street and talking to the neighbor? He says, I want you to go to Jerusalem. Where is my Jerusalem? 
Paul walked 15,000 miles while he was on this planet to get this message out. And why are we so scared to walk across the street and talk to the neighbor? 15,000 miles. Shipwrecked, beaten. And he says, I won't stop. Why won't we engage the neighbor across the street? Why won't we engage the coworker? I know that Paul believed this message. Guys, my challenge for us today is to turn off the distractions, to get our minds' attention and our hearts' affection set on that spiritual food, and to be able to say the same thing that he said. My food, what wakes me up every single day, is to do the will of my Father. Now notice what he says to these disciples. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought them something to eat? Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say that there are four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see the field is ripe for harvest. Church, Jesus is telling us this morning, just lift up your eyes. Just lift up your eyes and look out into your community. Look out into your world. Look out into your neighborhood. Look out into your family. And he's saying the fields are white for harvest, but the workers are few. So pray to the Lord of the harvest that he'll send more workers out into his fields. He says, already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored. You have now entered into their labor. Many Samaritans, check this out in verse 39. Many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. Now, listen, this lady's testimony had a part in it. But I can preach till I'm blue in the face. I don't have the ability to save anyone. They said, you know what? It's no longer because of your testimony that we believe. You see, essentially what they say without saying is we drank of this living water and we've tasted that indeed it is good. And it's not just because of your testimony. It's because we encountered him for ourselves. C.T. Studd said this. Some wish to live within the sound of a chapel bell. He said, but I would rather run a rescue mission within a yard of hell. He said, I want to get outside my religious bubble, and I want to set up shop within a yard of hell. And so my challenge to us, church, is this, to us to wake up. I believe with all my heart, if Jesus walked through those doors right now, he would say, man, you are living in the best time. People say, man, I hate to have to raise a child in this generation. I say, that's a cop out. This generation needs godly children. This generation needs godly young men that wake up and say, I'm not just going to live a morally decent life and stay away from sex and stay away from the party, but I'm going to live a missional gospel driven life, flipping my world upside down for the glory of his name. And I say there's no greater time for us to be living in than the day and time we're living in right now. Because it's dark days, but we got the light. So the old missionary says, set yourself on fire and the world will come to watch you burn. So my challenge to us is to not just be a hearer today, but be a doer. And we pray that God would set us on fire and that our food would be to do the will of our father. And when I would not get distracted with temporary things that are not going to last past this life. But I would invest my life and get the greatest return on my investment, and that's investing into eternity. 
Let's break this holy huddle and let's run to play. Let me pray for you. Father, we love you so much. Father, I thank you for your word. Father, I thank you for the example that you set for us in this scripture. There's Samaritan people, Father, there's lost and broken individuals around us all day, every day. And Father, often we pray and we say, give us an opportunity to share this message today, Father. And I know you're saying, just lift up your eyes. There's opportunity everywhere. That if we would abide in the vine, you say that you are the vine, we are the branches. If a man remains in you and I in him, he will bear much fruit. But apart from you, you said we could do nothing. Father, let Redeemer Church be a church that is abiding in the vine. A church that produces beautiful fruit. And this community says, I want to take a bite of the fruit that's on your tree. I want what you have. It said when they saw Peter, they saw John, they said, we know these men. They know where they, know, we know where they come from. Uneducated common men, but they recognize one thing. They have been with Jesus. Lord, I don't have a seminary degree. Father, I'm not qualified. I'm weak, but you say, in my weakness, you're made strong. In my inadequacy, you're adequate. And so, Father, I ask that you would equip your followers in this room to realize our weakness, but to realize that in our weakness, you're going to get your flex on, Father, and you're going to send us out into this world to burn for the glory of your name. Father, if there's one person under my breath that's never drank of the living water, that's never surrendered their life to you or ate of the living bread that you have to offer. Father, I ask that you not let them leave here today, that by your Holy Spirit they would have a conversation with someone and get snatched from that domain of darkness into the kingdom of your beloved son today. But Father, I'm praying for this church. But Father, this be a church that's about your business. This church be a church that's about Matthew 28. This being a disciple, this making a disciple, that's going to work not for a paycheck, but going to work for a purpose. Father, we love you. We thank you for your son. We thank you for getting out of the grave, defeating death, defeating sin, defeating everything there was to be defeated. So that one day, Father, death would just be like our car. We'll join those two babies, Father, and spend an eternity with you in heaven. Say, in your presence is the fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Father, we love you. We praise you. Set us on fire today. And we ask all these things in your precious name. Amen.